Good afternoon. Uh, this is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner at Lois LLC. And if you're joining us here today, it's to learn a little bit about independent medical evaluations in New York. Um, I'm joined today uh, by my partner, Tashia Razul. Uh, Tashia practices in our New York Workers' Compensation Defense Department and leads a team primarily in Brooklyn, um, defending cases from all different types of clients. Uh, but it seems like recently it's been a real concentration in construction cases. Yes. Fair? Yes, fair enough. Well, thanks for joining me here today. This is our live monthly webinar on New York workers' compensation topics. Uh, today our topic is getting the best uh, independent medical evaluation you can for your case, which is incredibly important in New York workers' comp cases. This is totally live. Uh, we are sitting here answering your questions live, so please send us questions. I can see questions popping up on our dashboard over here, so please do it as we go. And I'll try to answer questions, and we'll try to answer questions, I should say, as we go through uh, at the end. I won't say your names, I'll just say your first name, I'll repeat your question, and then we'll try our best to answer it. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. Right, that's, that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, agreed. All right, so I was joking around with Tashia before we started today. I said we both have to make sure we have our Lois merch mugs in front of us, which we do, so we're all set. Uh, again, let's have a little fun today. Please feel free to ask us your questions. Let's talk about some of the basics before we get into the more interesting parts of this topic. Um, when do we get an IME? There are several circumstances under which we can get an IME. And keeping in mind that an IME is probably one of the most important things in defending a claim mm -hmm. because it addresses the claimant's medical condition. Right. So we can get an IME to contest mm -hmm. degree of disability. If the claimant's doctor is finding him at a total, which they always do, we can get an IME to contest that. We can get an IME to comment on additional body parts. That is cause or relation when they're raising a new body part every month. Right. We can also get an IME to contest treatment. You know, the claimant's undergoing excessive therapy, requesting number of surgeries. Um, so we can get an IME commenting on the need for those treatments. We can also get an IME to comment on whether the claimant is at maximum medical improvement and it's time for permanency. Because truth be told, if we don't get an IME to initiate that process, yeah. the claim's going to go on forever. I mean, this jurisdiction is crazy. Uh, people can treat four or five years for a back sprain or uh, a, a knee injury with no hope of the doctor ever finding them at maximum medical improvement. Exactly. So that's why we need that IME. Right. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about our preferences in obtaining an independent medical evaluation. What do you look for? I look for a good doctor. Okay. I need someone who's qualified in the appropriate specialty, who um, has a lot of experience, who is more experienced or more credible than the claimant's own doctor. Mm -hmm. Because keeping in mind, the IME doctor is going to be seeing the claimant once, twice, maybe three times in a claim. He is performing his examination based on his review of the medicals and what the claimant tells him. Right. So we need an IME who's going to review all of those medical records, who is going to document what they find, who is going to incorporate them with his physical examination of the claimants. We need an IME who is also has a keen eye for prior injuries or conditions that can contribute to the claimant's current condition. Mm -hmm. Um, most importantly, we need an IME who can 
pretty much stand up for himself in a deposition. Right. And it's not examination. easy. It's not. It's not because claimant's attorneys love to ask them about possibilities. Isn't it possible that this right. could happen? Isn't yeah. it possible that that can happen? So we need a doctor who can testify as to what is in his report and in cross-examination just maintain that opinion and provide a basis for them. Right. And it's important to note that the cross-examination of our IME physician is going to take place out of court. Yes. And our adversary is going to throw hypotheticals. They're going to throw counterfactual questions at them. They're going to say, well, doctor, if you had known, and do anything they can to get our doctor to waver. Uh, so I agree with you. I, I think I want a, a qualified doctor. I want someone with board certifications, that type of thing. But then I really want someone who's going to stick to their guns yes. and stick to the four corners of their report Absolutely. and not you know, go on an intellectual journey, so to speak, with our adversary counsel leading them down a path uh, to changing their opinion on the fly. And we've actually seen that happen. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so we'll talk about this maybe a little later on, and, and we talked about it in our earlier session. I mean, we definitely believe that uh, after a while, IME doctors need to be put out to pasture. Maybe they get worn out. They get tired. There's... They're sick of fighting this fight, um, and they get beat up yes. almost all the time by our adversaries. I mean, our job as attorneys is to defend the doctors as best we can, but you know, they just get almost um, uh, the you know the questions just become one after another, and they they're constantly being challenged on their opinions. And at some point, they just I feel like they've given up at some point. They give up. Yes. They give up. So yes. you know, there is some a life cycle to it. And after several years of being a professional witness, essentially. Mm -hmm we find that they are not reliable anymore, yes. right? All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about setting up an exam. And the reason I think this is a good topic or a good uh, thing to touch on is because this jurisdiction has got a crazy amount of regulations and rules yes. regarding setting up the IME exam. Yes, and forms that go along with sure. the regulations and rules. So let's look at the forms that are needed quickly. So there's an IME 5, which mm -hmm. tells the claimant there's an IME scheduled. There's an IME-3, which is the cover uh, document for the, doc, the, the medical records that are being submitted. And there's the IME-4, which is the cover to the actual IME report. And all of these are necessary. If one of them is missing, the claimant's attorney can challenge the validity of the report and seek preclusion. Right. Um, it's also important that the schedule and timeframes are abided by. The claimant must have notice within seven days of the IME. Also, the service of the report, that's very, very important. It's one of the main reasons for a report being precluded. It must be served in all parties in the same manner within 10 days. Right. And that's very important. And the all parties is tricky. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So all parties, it has to be the claimant, his attorney, and all of his treating doctors within the past six months. Right. Now, as we know, these claimants go doctor shopping. Sometimes they go to four doctors a month. And when you're looking at the records, they've treated with 10 plus doctors right. in the past six months. Right. The other challenge is they're treating with the doctors and the doctors are not submitting their reports until after the IME right. or the IME scheduled. There's then, no way we could have known. Exactly, but they still argue that the IME report should be precluded because it wasn't served from the doctors. So it's um, it's it's really a big challenge in getting all of these lined up, but it's something that's very important that should be focused on because it's the number one reason that IME reports are precluded. Right. All right. Um, 
The other challenge we have in New York, so we've got a lot of forms that need to go to the doctors, we've got timelines, we've got rules, regulations. The other challenge is what we can and cannot say yes. to the physician that's well, evaluating the claimant. You know, it's, it's interesting because this is technically our doctor mm -hmm. and we have limitations in how we can interact or communicate with our doctor, right? right? Yeah, I mean, severe limitations. <laughs> yes, and it's not the same on the claimant side. They can call their doctor up and say, hey, this is what I need you to say in your deposition this afternoon. We're not allowed to do that. Anyway, um, that being the case, we can send them an IME cover letter, something that's drafted you know, by us or the carrier, and it details all of the information that the doctor should be looking at and the questions that we need him to address. Um, we can also submit materials or information that's not medical records, mm -hmm. surveillance videos, mm -hmm. uh, the employee claim form, um, uh, testimony transcripts of claimant's testimony at a prior hearing or a different case. I like sending personnel files, personnel job files. descriptions, yes. you know, things that actually tell the doctor, here's what this person actually does at work in their current right. job or their last job. As long as it's properly disclosed to all parties and right. filed with the board, there shouldn't be any issue with the IME doctor reviewing it. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. Right. And so you touched on something just sort of briefly that I think we should stress. You know, the greatest opportunity to really communicate with the IME doctor beyond just all the things we're sending to them um, and besides just who we're picking, right, because that's, that's one big signal. But the other uh, thing that we should really be mindful of is that IME cover letter. Yes. Right. And, you know, we're pretty careful about how we put those together. Um, you know, we're telling the doctor as much objective information as we possibly can. Yes. And I'm trying to give the doctor a really good summary of this person's maybe prior claims history, maybe current claims history, you know, maybe a little bit about the current procedural posture of the case. You know, this is an admitted case. This is a denied case here. Or we're accepting this, denying that, and here's what we're asking you to comment on. And then we want to give the doctor just a really clear set of questions that we're asking that doctor to address. Yes. Um, and that's our best opportunity, I think, to really get the doctor understanding what we're asking of them. I agree. And, you know, that also ties into getting a good IME doctor because I've seen IME, doc, uh, IME reports where we send a great IME cover letter. And they ignore it and they don't answer the questions. Exactly. We're asked, Doctor, exactly. this thing was not on for degree of disability. This is on for causal relationship. Right. You know, I needed you to ask answer a completely different question. Yes. Sure. So I'm going to go back and add to that list of things that we look for in an IME doctor. And it's one who actually reads your IME cover letter mm -hmm. and does what we ask him to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So last little bullet point here is, look, it, it, these things are going to happen, but can we call the doctor to prep the doctor? Unfortunately, no, which frustrates me. All right. It's crazy. Um, so, you know, let's think about this. Our adversary can communicate with their doctor, and, and they'll always say, well, we were talking to the uh, physician about their current treatment course. I wasn't mm -hmm. talking to them about, you know, the contents of their testimony that day. Right. But, I mean, really, is there any difference? You know? There's not. And I've actually done depositions where I cross-examined the doctor about his communications with the claimant's attorney in preparation for the deposition. He conceded that he talked to the attorney about like what the depth's on for. That's an motion to add. preclude, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. But more often than not, I mean, it's extraordinarily rare to get a claimant, a treating doctor's 
notes thrown out or oh, their, yes. their testimony thrown out. They're pros. It works the other way. Yeah. Okay. We are getting precluded much more often than them. And it seems to me, and this is just my observation, um, that we're primarily getting precluded for a failure to provide proper service. Fair. Yes. Yes. I think I think I think that's the number one reason why reports are being precluded. Um, it's 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 so important. I can't, I can't even stress how important it is. Yeah. Um, I think that's the first thing our adversaries look at when they get the IMA report. They pick it up, see who's been served. Is it outside of ten days? Um, and you know, a lot of times it's one day outside of the ten day. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's one doctor that wasn't copied on it. Right. So I think that's it's it's very important to ensure that service is proper. And it's, you know, I've seen really good reports get precluded because of this. You know, we, we argue prejudice, that there's no prejudice to the claimants, right. that the service wasn't proper, um, but the judges don't really Yeah, we took a little lose on that. Yes. Yeah. And you had a recent case uh, where they attempted to preclude your report because of what you sent to the doctor. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the, the client had surveillance. They weren't going to use it to pursue like 114A fraud per se because it didn't show the claimant working, but it showed the claimant doing activities inconsistent with what he's telling his doctors who are finding him at a total disability. So they filed it with the board, sent it to the claimant's attorneys. Um, the attorney sent it to the claimant and asked the IME doctor to comment on it. Mm. So the IME doctor did, and then he changed his opinion after the after he reviewed good. the video. So it served its purpose. It no, did. It good. did. So in court, they attempted to argue that he should have been precluded. The report should have been precluded because the claimant didn't testify before the IME doctor saw the saw the, the surveillance, and that the judge did not direct the IME doctor to review, review it. it and comment on it. And we argue that those are not requirements. It was properly disclosed. Everyone was on notice mm -hmm. as to what the doctor is reviewing. Right. And the law judge agreed, and the report was not precluded. So that's why, you know, it's always a good idea to send any additional information to the IME doctor, which we think would help in making his decision. Right. Now, the, the downside to that, of course, is that surveillance video has now lost its surprise effect. That's true. So the preliminary determination has to be made um, as to whether the surveillance would work better mm -hmm. if we keep it a surprise, cross-examine the claimant, and then pursue fraud that way, or if we just disclose it. Right. Um, and that's that's an assessment we help our clients to make all the time. And it also depends on like the judges or the hearing points. So our familiarity with those also help in making that determination. Right. Right. All right. So last thing before we move on, um, how about when your doctor's been precluded? Again, it's the most common outcome. Yes. Uh, and your doctor's been precluded. Um, any advice? Yes, cross-examine the claimant's doctor. We don't lose that right. Don't Just don't waive it. Right. Um, usually, the adversaries argue that the issue is not joined because we no we longer have nothing have in opposition anymore, exactly. sure. But the regulations actually say that we're entitled to, or we have the right to, cross-examine the claimant's doctor and the judges must adjourn the case for that. Now I've seen most judges do it after we put up a fight. Yeah, explain to them, hey, this is what the law actually says. Exactly, sure. but we've also prevailed on the issue on appeal, so it's something we should definitely move forward with mm -hmm. and also immediately schedule a new IME and right. fix the first problem. Right.
Right. Okay. Uh, so this slide just says, hey, remember, they prepare. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you know, I threw this slide in here because uh, there's two things that I think should be discussed. First, you know, as much as we can put together great IME cover letters and materials for our doctors, just remember, these claimants, there are videos on YouTube that they can watch that prepares them for how exactly to go and represent themselves yes. to our physicians. And I'm certain that some of them are doing it. I know um, from watching some uh, plaintiff's attorneys, either presentations at like bar events or just, you know, from my knowledge, where they're telling their um, their claimants, their clients, their plaintiffs, keep a pain journal. Write down something in it every day so that you don't lose touch with your pain. Because, you know, normal course of healing, you sort of get acclimated to whatever yes. your condition is. And then after a while, you know, it starts to become normal. But not if you're keeping a pain journal so you can remember exactly. every ache and pain and every problem you've had. And so that's that's something to be a little bit thoughtful about. And the other thing Or you is, can, like, make it up and study it for the eye. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, your, your attorney gives you your pain <laughs> journal and says, here yes. you go. Um, and the other thing that's happening in New York is... Uh, there's an organization called IME Watchdog, mm, which mm -hmm. appears to be staffed by former paralegals from plaintiff's practices who go with the claimants to their IMEs uh, and then sort of create a counter IME report, which says all the things the IME doctor didn't do or didn't do correctly while evaluating that claim, but to sort of present some uh, sort of countervailing proofs. Um, so far, it's none of them have come into any of our cases. We just say, that's not a witness that I'm going to hear. Yeah. Uh, we've been uh, successful with that. But it also seems like an outgrowth of a case that has maybe a very viable third-party claim where there is an actual tortfeasor and they're, they're trying to protect their third party as best they can. Yes. Um, so that's just something to be mindful of in New York. All right. <sighs> One question we get all the time, and it happens in almost every case, claimant misses an IME. Use it to our advantage. Sure. Um, if, if they're missing the IMEs, they're essentially failing to cooperate with their investigation of their condition in the claim, mm -hmm. right? And the medicals are the basis for awards for them to get indem indemnity benefits. So if we're not under a CCP, let's just say we accepted the claim and we've been paying him voluntarily and he's not attending our IMEs, we can suspend benefits unilaterally. Mm -hmm. If we're under a CCP, we can suspend benefits unilaterally, but file at RFA as soon as possible to get it before the judge. We want the judge to make a decision. Yep. Um, a lot of times they say, well, it was sent to the wrong address or they didn't receive it, even though it was sent to the correct address. But I think we should be aggressive in ensuring that they're not, in, they're not getting benefits for the period during which they missed the IMEs. Correct. And judges usually allow like a third time, but after the second time, I think we should it's start coming doing to an end. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, one of the typical things is that they miss the first IME and they say, oh, I didn't have transportation. All right. Well, when we reschedule that next one, we're going to provide transportation. Yes. Uh, the other, other excuse I hear is, oh, I had something that day. Really? Because you're home collecting temporary total disability. What do you have on your schedule? Sleeping that all day. And that's almost one of those red flag situations where you're like, well, maybe we should surveil this person. Maybe they're working someplace. They've got yes. some other job somewhere we just don't know about. You know, so right. those are things to be thoughtful about. Uh, question we get all the time, can we obtain surveillance? Absolutely. Why not? Um, I think it's one of the best times to obtain surveillance of the claimant. Um, it should be like a full day surveillance to see what he's doing before the IME mm -hmm. visit mm -hmm. and what he's doing after. And I've um, I've been successful in arguing 
for fraud in cases where we obtain surveillance of the claimant showing him going to the IME with braces and limping and all that stuff. Then after the IME, it's perfectly fine. The braces are gone. He's working perfectly fine. Right. And it is a misrepresentation. It's a material misrepresentation of a fact that's pertinent to him getting benefits. Yep. And I think, you know, that's... I, it's one of the most crucial times because he's lying to our IME doctor right. about his condition. Um, the investigator can't go in the room with him, but he can go as far as the waiting room to see what sure. he's doing in the waiting room. And I've seen those, you know, those hat cams or the oh, panel cameras yes. in the waiting room. Yes. They're great. And I've actually seen videos where claimants uh, loosen their guard a little even while sitting in the waiting room because no one's really paying attention to who's mm -hmm. doing what. Mm -hmm. So you see them sitting in a certain manner or moving around in a certain manner, mm -hmm. and then five minutes later, they go into the examination, they're telling the doctors they're paralyzed. Right, yeah, the, the story changes. Yeah. Yep. All right, uh, question I get a lot as well is, can we force the claimant to attend a functional capacity evaluation? And personally, I like a functional capacity evaluation. I think they're very objective. I think if they're done right with the computer sensors, I think they can be really amazing tools that really determining what level of exertion this claimant can actually achieve. Uh, but no, there is no system or form or rule that we can rely on to say you have to go to a functional capacity evaluation right. anytime we want. But uh, as part of an IME, we can request, and we'll do this in a cover letter, we'll say, doctor, if you think a functional capacity evaluation would you know, give you a better holistic or comprehensive view of this claimant, please let us know so that yes. we can go to schedule. And then we'll use the doctor's opinion in the IME report as a basis to file an RFA-2 and ask the law judge to direct the claimant to attend one. Right. So that's how we sort of backdoor into a functional capacity evaluation in New York. All right, uh, we are now at time for questions. So let me come over here. I hope there are some questions. Again, this is totally live. So if you haven't asked any questions, uh, this is going to be a quick one. Uh, here we go. Uh, oh, we got a lot. Look at this. Mm. Oh, lots of cheese. All right. All right. This is awesome. Great. We got. We have a live bunch here. This is great. Uh, Leonard says, "I can't see you guys, and the screen isn't switching." Oh no. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at the control room. They're saying, "Yeah." Uh, okay. Uh, Leonard then asks another question a few minutes later. Often you have claim with orthopedic and pain management issues. If the entire treatment regimen is at issue, what IME expert would you recommend? Would you recommend two IMEs? So I've recommended two IMEs. Me too. That's what yes. I would do. I like it. The more, the merrier. Exactly. Let's let's have two doctors comment on what this guy is doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the claimants are also treating with pain management and an ortho. Mm -hmm. They, at the moment of the hearing, might only be relying on the pain management doctor. But you know what? At the next hearing, they're going to start arguing with the it's ortho. It's the ortho, right. Exactly. So I always recommend getting both specialties just to cover all bases. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, good. We both agreed on that one. All right. So Joe asked a question, and, and uh, this is Joe M. He says, do you have a vendor in mind who has a good list of IME doctors? Well, Joe, uh, not really, because a lot of IME vendors have a lot of great doctors. Um, we don't particularly recommend, I don't really recommend that many physicians overall. I often mm -hmm. will ask the client, who's on your list? Yes. And then I'll tell you who I think would be the best one for this case. Is that pretty much your practice? It is. And, you know, so I've been practicing in Brooklyn for the longest while now. So I know 
which doctors the the judges oh that's don't a good point right incredible because we might like a doctor but the judge doesn't exactly right? so you've and got to also play that yeah as well. so i would tell my clients just don't use dr smith and dr you know john for this particular case because the judge is not going to find him credible we'll have to file an appeal the case is going to be held up and all that stuff so i take that into consideration for the recommendation sure. but like you said i um I, I, I stay away from recommending doctors because there are a lot of good doctors. Right. But if there's someone that I think we should not go to, right. I would tell the client that. Yeah. And then I'll also say, Joe, that uh, in specific cases, we'll definitely give a specific physician who we think would be the right one for that case. Yes. And then the more uh, the case is not like your typical hand, finger, foot, and toe case, the more right. likely we're going to be very specific about exactly which doctor I want. And what I really mean by that is, the more specific or um, complex, complex the, in, the injury, the yeah. more likely I'm going to have somebody exactly in mind for that yes. case. Uh, I think that's probably pretty fair. Um, Kim asks, are you providing screenshots we should be seeing? Uh-oh, I'm getting a little scared that people can't actually oh, see no. anything. <laughs> They're saying we can. All right. Are there multiple doctors? If there are multiple, Michelle asked the question, if there are multiple doctors treating the patient uh, at the same time, do we need to list each doctor specifically on the referral, or is it enough to list the facility once? So I would recommend just list the doctors. Me too. List the I, doctors. I think it's over. It's overkill. It's crazy. Yes. But I'd rather do that than have to argue later when we're trying to argue against a preclusion why we didn't do that. Right? Exactly. Uh, okay. Here's a good one. This is this is one of my favorite questions. Uh, all right. Can we, okay, so Leonard asked the question. Leonard, thanks for all these questions. He's got a lot of them in here, but this is good. Uh, he says, can we challenge our own IME expert if they ignore our question? Uh, or it goes completely outside the scope of the IME or treatment is not supported by e-case record. <laughs> <laughs> well. It's really not easy to do this. I know. It, you know, it attacks our credibility, attacks mm -hmm. the doctor's credibility. We have to be very creative in during the deposition to get our doctor to testify what yeah. we want him to. We try to, to fix it. Let's, yes. let's be frank. We try to fix it. Yes. Uh, we try to steer them back to the question we ultimately want. But and if our adversaries were, you know, on the on the ball, they wouldn't let us do it. They wouldn't let us fix it. Exactly. You know, uh, they would say, "Wait a second, your testimony is now departing the four corners of your report, and you're out of luck." Right. But yes. I, mean, we've... I mean, so I've, I've also tried the, the possibility, you know, isn't it possible that this could happen and then the adversaries object to it? But interestingly enough, they're the ones who are always asking our doctor, isn't it possible that this is the case, yeah, right. right? Yeah, they get hypothetical very quickly. Yes. So that sometimes opens the door for us. Okay, Michelle asked the question, how many missed IMEs are requested before uh, benefit payments should be suspended in the voluntary phase? One. Michelle, yes. I'm holding up. I hope people can see us, but I'm holding up one finger. The first time they miss an IME and you're paying voluntarily, you're Stop not paying it. voluntarily anymore. I mean, exactly. I don't think, you know, uh, there's something going on there that needs to be, uh, you know, sort of like looked into. All right. Um, Gail asked a question Should you file the RFA2 after one missed IME, or should we reschedule and if the second IME is missed, then file the RFA2? All right. So that's more of a tactical question. When do you start? When do you start filing your RFAs for missed IMEs? So I I start filing them after the first one. Yeah, me too. Because why wait? Yeah. 
Um, okay, and let's talk that out because I think RFA2s are cheap to file. Yes. They're easy. Yes. You file it pretty much, it's going to be like three months before it gets listed anyway. Exactly. And maybe now they've missed the second IME. Right. So by the time it comes on for the first missed IME, like I'm arguing there's been two now, Exactly. Judge. Fair? Yes. Yeah. Or in rare cases, they get scared and then they go to the IME and then, well, the issue is resolved by the time right. the hearing comes up. Right. But I agree. After the first one, let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that's a situation where I mean, the RFA-2 is going to be completed by a paralegal. It's not going to cost a lot of time, effort, blood, or treasure to get that filed. So, right. you know, from a guiding a client perspective, you know, I'm always thinking, hey, what's the most aggressive thing you can possibly do? Also, comma, what's the best use of resources? Because we don't just want to you know file every RFA-2 you could possibly exactly. file. But I think that's a good example of you know trying to be really aggressive about about that. Um, Lauren asked the question, uh, does the surveillance video have to go to all doctors? I was told only to the IME doctor. Um, oh, no, it, it to has the board, to be. So it's going to get to every doctor. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it has to be filed with the board. It has to be sent to the claimant and his attorney. And usually what I do if I'm doing it on behalf of the clients, write a letter to the adversary saying, Here's the surveillance video. Mm -hmm. Send it to your clients, right. doctors, and have them comment on it. Yeah, and the reason for that is because it's going to be a non-scannable object. Exactly, yes. It's not going to be actually present for them. But right. Yeah. All right, Joe M uh, throws us a bone here, and he says, we can see you just fine, guys. Good presentation. All right, control room. All right, there are everywhere. there's a lot of thumbs <laughs> up over here. All right. Uh, Kathy says, um, and this is the last question we'll take, is the Client waited six years to ask for a perm evaluation, uh, but the claimant had already been an MMI pending total knee replacement. I don't know. This question, maybe I'm missing part of it. Hold on a second here. Client waited six years. It's a little bit, you know what, Kathy, email me this question because I think we're missing like maybe a sentence in here. Um, maybe you're asking me who should do the evaluation for a total knee replacement. I think that would be an orthopedic Ortho. position. Yes. Right. Um, of course, six years of treatment for a knee replacement seems a little out of control as well. We but... need that IME now. Okay. All right. Uh, those are questions. Thanks for sending us in your questions. I really appreciate it. It makes it a lot more fun when there's a lot of questions like that. Yes. So that was great. Um, all right. Please join us next month. Next month, we're going to talk about a fun topic. And that topic is going to be um, determining exposure in individual cases. So we're going to talk about scheduled loss of use cases, which are relatively straightforward. And we're going to talk about Loss of wage earning capacity cases, which are a lot less straightforward. And we're going to talk about ways of minimizing exposure and also just pricing out cases uh, with uh, both scheduled loss of use injuries, that's hand, finger, feet, toes, knees, elbows, shoulders, and loss of wage earning capacity cases as well. Uh, that's it for this month. Thanks for joining us, and I hope we see everybody in November. Thanks. Bye.